But if you will find your place in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week we skipped ahead to chapter 8 because I wanted to save chapter 7, this passage on uh, marriage and, and singlehood and, and recovery and you name it. Uh, I wanted to save it to today. Thank you for standing as we open the Word of God together. And we'll read the first seven verses, but then we'll uh, kind of look at the context that we find these verses in. A lot of this chapter here, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and uh, while you're standing and finding your place there, let me reiterate, please sign up today for the Love Unrestrained. Now you know where we got that title, Love Unrestrained. When Jeff told me the, um, the lyrics to the song that we would be doing today, I said, Love Unrestrained. I said, that's it. That's, that's what our marriage conference uh, needs to be called, Love Unrestrained. And so we'll learn a lot of great things this week. Uh, Brother Gary uh, Purvis is going to talk with us about uh, communication. That's an important thing, right? He's going to talk with us about marriage intimacy, what marriage is to be a picture of, the, the big picture of, of marriage. Um, and so, so a lot of great things. He's going to talk about our, our prayer and faith life within our marriage. So I uh, hope you will sign up for that. I hope you'll be a part of that this uh, coming weekend. Uh, look at verse 1 at, uh, at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, about the things you wrote, in other words, he's answering a question here. He said, it is good for a man not to have relations with a woman. And King James says, for a man not to touch a woman. Uh, but it's talking about in the context of marriage and in the consummation of marriage. He says, but because of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. A wife does not have authority over her own body, but her husband does. Now, before you stop right there, men, and think that that's some kind of permission granted to be kind of a tyrant and controlling and, 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 and uh, a domineering husband, he gives us part two. Equally, a husband does not have ownership or authority over his own body, but his wife does. So she owns you as much as you own her. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I say this as a concession, not as a command. I wish that all people were just like me, but each has his own gift from God. One this and another that. Father, Lord, I pray that your spirit would give us greater understanding of your truth today and that you would also empower us to live it by grace. Lord, as we celebrate Valentine's Day today, we realize that the, the first red heart that commemorated a man called Valentine was really a bloody heart, a heart that represented the martyrdom of saints. And Lord, I pray that as the body of Christ, we would remember that, that we would remember that love is selfless and willing to give its very life. And that's what you did for us on the cross, and we're thankful in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I've read uh, columns by Dave Barry a couple times in the past, and I found another one I'd like to share with you this morning to kind of uh, stimulate our thinking in this area of Valentine's. It says, the other day, this is Dave writing, he says, the other day my son and I were talking, and the subject of women came up. Man, have you been there with your sons? He says, and I realized it was time he and I had a serious talk. It's a talk every father should have with his son, and yet far too often we fathers avoid the subject because it's so awkward. The subject I'm referring to is buying gifts for women. 
<laughs> Some of you wondered where he was going with that one. He says, this is an area where many men do not have a clue. Exhibit A, my father, who was a very thoughtful man, who once gave my mother on their anniversary the following token of his love, his commitment, and yes, his passion for her, an electric blanket. He honestly could not understand when she opened the box that she gave him that look. You veteran men know the look that I mean. Another example, he said, I once worked with a guy named George who for Christmas gave his wife for her big gift, and I'm not making this gift up, a chainsaw. He later explained, hey, we needed a chainsaw. Fortunately, the saw was not immediately operational when his wife unwrapped it. The mistake that George and my dad made, and that many guys make, was thinking that when you choose a gift for a woman, it should be something useful. Wrong. The first rule of buying gifts for women is the gift should not do anything. Or if it does, it should do it badly. For example, let's consider two possible gifts, both of which theoretically perform the same function. Gift one, a state-of-the-art gasoline-powered lantern with electronic ignition and dual mantles capable of generating 1,200 lumens of light for 10 hours on a single tank of fuel. Gift two, a scented beeswax candle containing visible particles of bee poop and providing roughly the same illumination as a lukewarm corn dog. Now to say gift one is clearly superior because you could use it to see in the dark, whereas to a woman, gift two is much better because women love to sit around in the gloom with reeking, sputtering candles, and don't ask me why. I also don't know why women would be ticked off if you gave her a 56-piece socket wrench set with a 72-tooth reversible ratchet but thrilled if you give her a tiny, very expensive vial of liquid with a name with words like L'essence de you, de parfum, de cologne, de toilette, de bidet, <laughs> which to the male nostril smells no better than a stick of juicy fruit gum. All I'm saying is that this is the kind of thing women want. That's why the ultimate gift is jewelry. It's totally useless. The second rule of buying gifts for women is you are never finished. This is the scary part. The part that my son and his friends are just discovering. If you have a girlfriend, she will give you at minimum a birthday gift, an anniversary gift, a Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa gift, and a Valentine's Day gift. And every one of these gifts will be nicely wrapped and accompanied by a thoughtful card. When she gives you this gift... In all caps, he writes, you have to give her one back. You can't just open your wallet and say, here's, uh, let's see, $17? And as I told my son, it only gets worse. Looming ahead are bridal showers, weddings, baby showers, Mother's Day, and a mandatory gift occasions that would not exist if men, as alleged, really ran the world. Women observe all of these occasions and more. My wife will buy gifts for no reason. She'll go into one of those gift stores at the mall that men never enter, and she'll find something, maybe a tiny cute box that could hold nothing larger than a molecule. 
and is therefore useless, and she'll buy it, plus a thoughtful card, and she doesn't even know who the recipient is going to be yet. Millions of other women are out there doing the same thing, getting further and further ahead while we guys are home watching instant replays. (laughs) We have no chance of winning this war. That's what I told my son. It wasn't pleasant, but it was time he knew the truth. Someday, he... When he is older and stronger, he'll tackle an even more difficult issue. Namely, what to do when women ask, do these pants make me look fat? The answer will be, flee the country. (laughs) I don't know if you have a difficult time finding that gift. Uh, I would argue that probably most godly women would, would say that more time with you would be a wonderful gift, but I'm sure that they appreciate tokens of affection and love. But I think they would appreciate something even greater, and that is if we understood our calling as husbands and understood their value as wives. Uh, Paul had dealt with issues of sanctification to this point, and that's why we have called this series The Difference. When it comes to being set apart, when it comes to being sanctified for God's purpose, then there should be some areas in our life that are so different from the world in which we live. A clean and holy life, a life that is different. If there's an area that the difference should be more evident, both in our worldview and in our practice and what this world can observe, it should be the difference in our perspective on marriage. The difference in what we understand about this thing called marriage. Uh, it's as the, the 1789, the Book of Common Prayer, where we get a lot of our wedding vows today, or at least we, what we might base a lot of our wedding vows on. Uh, the Book of Common Prayer had this statement. It says, marriage is a holy estate. And it goes on to say, not by any to be entered into unadvisedly or lightly. And that would echo the sentiments of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He wanted them to know that it was a sacred thing. It was something that you didn't need to rush into. And so he spends much of this chapter giving them permission not to enter into the holy estate of marriage. And so the question for us is, if it's supposed to be so different, if the Christian worldview, if the biblical perspective is so different, how do we protect that? And as I prayed a moment ago for the message today, we, we protect that by understanding some things that the Bible teaches us that the world may not always get. Unfortunately, on occasion, it might even seem that those who don't have the revelation of Christ, that don't have God's Word, model it better often than, than we do in the church. And so, and so what are those things that we need to have a better understanding of? Well, let's start with the first one. We need to understand the, the prerogative of, of single living. We need to understand that God has given us that prerogative and that he has said it is okay if you don't get married. Married is a good thing, it is a wonderful thing, but it's not a necessary thing for those who perhaps aren't called to it. And so he says about the things you wrote, it is good for a man not to have relations, and he's talking about relations with the assumption that marriage has taken place and the consummation, the physical relations that follow would enter in as a result. And he's saying it's good for a man to just stay single if he can. 
compare that to what we read in Proverbs 18.22 where it says that uh, when you find a wife or you finds a wife finds a good thing. Now we're hearing, but it's also good if you remain single, if that is possible. So marriage is wonderful, but what Paul is saying is it's just simply not meant for everybody. It's probably meant for most people, but not necessarily meant for everybody. And it is not always meant for a person at a particular season in their life. Now, once you're married, that season becomes permanent. But sometimes God says you can be single longer than somebody else can be single before you ever enter into marriage. And then in verse 7, we see that it's possible that singlehood can even be a gift from God because Paul says, I wish that people were just like me. Paul was able to go and not be tied down at home. He was able to shake the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, but each one has his own gift from God, one this and another that. And so some may even have the gift of singlehood, and that should be celebrated. If somebody has that gift, they should be able to enjoy that gift. They should never be looked down upon for being single or remaining single for a time. He says, if you're able to do that, wonderful. That is, that is a gift. It's the grace, the, the gifts of God or grace uh, are, are bestowed where we don't earn or deserve them. But it's the grace for someone to say, I am content and I am happy to never get married. And contentment should be a Christian way of life. When you look down at verse 17, he will go on to say in, in this very chapter here, however, each one must live his life in the situation the Lord assigned him when God called him. This is what I command in, in all the churches. says, listen, if you're in a particular situation and God has called you in that situation, in verses 17 through 24, he kind of builds on that. He says, look, if he gives you an opportunity to change your circumstances in, in certain situations, it's okay to change your circumstances, but it's also okay for you to be content in that situation that you find yourself. And I would argue, as I often have with, with young people, that until you are content in your relationship with Christ, and I don't mean that there can't be a longing to one day be married, but until you're saying, you know, Jesus is my all in all, then there's no spouse out there that is going to make you complete and content and completely happy. And so there's a, a reminder to learn to be content. Look at verse 25. He says, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but do give an opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Therefore, I consider this to be a good, uh, or to be good because of the present distress. It is fine for a man to stay as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned. Some of the men said, amen. He says, if you can stay single, then that is a wonderful state to find yourself in. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, verses 10 through 12, Jesus was answering a question about divorce. And we'll come back to that in our third part of this message. But in answering that question, someone was like, well, who can handle this kind of teaching, and Jesus responded, he said, well, listen, not everybody can remain single. If it's possible for you to remain single, well, that's cool. Not everyone can remain single. But those who can, with those whom it is possible, it's okay. And he then kind of describes what we might call the gifts of celibacy or the reasons that some people would remain celibate. And in explaining that, he would point out that 
And I won't dig into some of the pagan practices and, and, and some of the crazy things that happened during that time. But he would point out that there were some for the single life that it was a calling because they were simply born that way. They were born with a certain gift or they were born with certain consequences. And, and because of that, they would never enter into marriage. And he uses the word eunuchs there to describe them, to describe who they are. And these would be people who would never marry. And so they, because of the way they were born, and I believe even today that there are people, and it may be rare, but there are people, there are, there are men and women that, that are born without having to battle with these certain desires that says, you know what, I've got to have relations with someone else. Unfortunately, a lot of times our culture, and it even starts in the teen years, we start to pick on that guy who's not chasing girls or pick on that girl who's content without guys. And we start to say, well, they must be a homosexual or something like that, when really they may just have a gift to where they don't have to be in that kind of relationship. And I think that's why we've got to be careful about even starting young because we could push our kids into something they're not ready for about, well, don't you have a boyfriend or don't you have a girlfriend? That singleness should be celebrated if someone has a gift or if they're in that season of life. It can be a, a calling. It can also be a cross. Singlehood can be a cross. See, there were eunuchs that it was forced on. They didn't ask for it. They didn't want it. But they were eunuchs because of something that was forced on them. Now, today, it's not that somebody would necessarily force singlehood on somebody, but there could be individuals who, have, who are carrying the cross of singlehood. We all have crosses we carry in our life. We all have things that we might say, God, I didn't ask for this sickness. I didn't ask for this struggle. I didn't ask for this financial situation. I didn't ask for this problem. And, and God says, this is a cross that you're going to carry by my grace. This may be a thorn in the flesh, like the Apostle Paul prayed three times, uh, uh, let this be removed from me. And I don't think that Paul was necessarily praying about singlehood when he prayed that. But, but it could be that for some, they are single and they've been looking, and they've been praying, and for some reason God hasn't brought the right one into their life yet, or maybe they failed to recognize it in the past or something, but they would say, listen, I don't want to be single, but it is a cross that I'm called to carry, and I will carry that cross until Jesus says I can lay that cross down when he brings the right one into my life. So sometimes it's a calling, sometimes it's a cross, and sometimes it is a choice. Jesus said some just chose to be that way. Some choose because they're willing to sacrifice marriage for the sake. And I don't mean they got married and decided, well, I'm going to sacrifice this marriage for the sake of the kingdom. I don't believe that's God's way. When we get married, we become teammates for the kingdom. But, but there are some who choose to never marry because they like to be free to serve the Lord. And in all of these situations, it's not a fear of commitment that's making someone single. In these situations... It's not a fear of commitment that's causing them not to pop the question. It's not that, listen, if somebody says, I want to be single because I just kind of want to be able to play the field, that's not what we're talking about with a gift of singleness. That person, he would say, according to verse 2, that person needs to get married. That person needs to find their spouse. But if it's a gift, if it's a calling, it's, it's not a fear of getting married. And that We're seeing that a lot in the world today, aren't we? We're seeing people, and the first marriages are getting later and later in life, but we're seeing people who are like, man, I'm, I'm scared. I don't want to get married. I don't want to enter into a commitment. Or we're seeing people who feel like they've got to play the field or they've got to have as many relationships as possible. 
Uh, you know, and sometimes they enter into a relationship, and this is not the gift. If, if a man and a woman, they started dating when they were 18, 19, or 20, and now they're 27, 28, 29, and they still haven't gotten married, I believe in those cases they're just putting off something that God has called them to. But we are so afraid of commitment in our culture today. And so that's not it. It's not the guy who says, you know what? I, I, I read where one guy said, the Falcons fans are the greatest girls to date. He said, you, you can date a girl who is a diehard Falcons fan, and you know if she's a diehard Falcons fan, well then, hey, she must really love football. And so you, you're ahead of the game there. And you know if she's a Falcons fan, that she must be really faithful. She must be really loyal if she's a Falcons fan. And, and thirdly, you know if she's a Falcons fan, that she is never expecting a ring. And so you need to date a Falcons fan. Some of you will get that later. Not expecting a ring. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a gift from God, and, and it leads to a missional commitment. Look, he comes back to this at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 32, down at the end of the chapter here. He says, I want you to, to be without concerns. An unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And he is divided. An unmarried woman or a virgin is concerned with the things of the Lord. So she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And certainly Paul is not saying that is wrong for you to be concerned about your family. What he's saying is if you are married, your first ministry is to your family. And so there are going to be times in the church and the body of Christ where even as a pastor, I need to communicate that my family, my wife, my family is a first priority. And that may mean that I have to let go of a ministry opportunity to someone else in the body of Christ. And hopefully in doing so, I'm modeling marriage and the love of Christ by making my family a priority. What Paul is saying here is not that that's bad. That is good and wonderful. He celebrates that in Ephesians chapter 5. But first, he says, if you are single, that's a prerogative that you can enjoy. And the rest of us who are married should be able to commend them and not put them down and celebrate with them and say, wonderful that you're able to do those things you're able to do for the kingdom of God and for the glory of God. For some, it might be temporary for those who are, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, however long you might say, well, I, you know, I want to be married, but I'm not married yet. Then take advantage of those years. Go on that three-month mission trip. Do something for God that you can do while you're single that once you have a wife or husband and children that you may not be able to do. And so for some it's temporary and some it may be a life calling. But secondly, we, we not only need to understand this prerogative, he is going to talk about marriage in this chapter. And we need to understand the purposes of marriage. The purposes of marriage. Now look back at verse 2. We see that, and really in verses 2 through 6, one of the greatest purposes of marriage is conjugal love. That, that It's all a picture, that this wonderful uh, um, provision of conjugal love. It's, it's a provision that God gave us to enjoy. He says, but because of sexual immorality, each one should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. And then we read 
a moment ago that, that there's a, a physical responsibility we have to one another to even protect one another. And he says, and then the husband owns the wife's body, the wife owns the husband's body. It's not about who's in control of who. It's about the fact that the two have become one. It's that we are now one. We are now together. And yes, there is a physical union there, a conjugal love that we're to enjoy, but it's not only a physical union, it is a spiritual union. It is an emotional oneness. That's why it's saved for marriage. That's why he says, if you're struggling with sexual immorality, if you have those desires and you probably don't have the gift, then go ahead and find that spouse. Don't put it off. Don't be afraid of commitment, but find that spouse. Get married and enjoy all that because what a lot of people will try to do is they'll try not to have the spiritual commitment and instead they will try to have the physical union and the physical relations and all that and say, well, I'll just come with that. And, and they don't realize that when you are tied with someone physically, you become, a tie, you become tied with them emotionally, you become tied with them spiritually, and you're setting yourselves up for the greatest hurt in your life. And he said all that was created for marriage. You go back to Genesis. For this call shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. And that first union was both physical and spiritual and emotional. And it was called marriage. And it was all that the marriage brought about. The Song of Solomon is an entire book written on this courtship process and the conjugal love, the provision that God gave. And it wasn't just for, even though in Genesis we're told to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, it wasn't just for procreation purposes. It was also for there to be a union between a man and a wife, which moves us to the second part of this understanding of the purposes of sacred marriage. It's not only a provision for conjugal love, it is a picture of covenant love. It was a provision. God says, I want you to enjoy being married and everything that comes with that, but it was also a picture of, of covenant love. When you go back to verse 10, he says, I command the married, not I, but the Lord. A wife is not to leave her husband. Why? It's a covenant. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to leave his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has an unbelieving wife and she is willing to live with him, he must not leave her. Also, if any woman has an unbelieving husband and he is willing to live with her, she must not leave her husband. There is a covenant here of unconditional love, even to the degree if the spouse is not a believer. Now, for those of you who aren't married, let me remind you that Paul will also say that we're to be unequally, not to be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, and I believe one application of that is is marriage. It might be in business partnerships and a lot of other areas that we would apply that, but certainly in marriage, a believer is not supposed to marry an unbeliever. And I'll go a step further, young people, an on-fire believer for Jesus Christ should only marry an on-fire believer for Jesus Christ, somebody who has a passion for God, or, or you're going to have all kinds of struggles later battling on what your priorities are. And, and so here he's saying, listen, this is a covenant love why? It's a picture of God's covenant. Think about Ephesians chapter 5. In Ephesians chapter 5, Jesus interweaves the, the relationship between Christ and the church and a husband and the wife. And he says, husbands, love your wives. How? As Christ loves the church, yeah. And wives, in verse 33, are to show their husbands the reverence, the respect that the church shows Christ. 
And so there's this picture, and he says later, he gets into marriage and talks about this sacrificial love and the sanctification that's taking place in the context of marriage. And he's t- he comes back and he says, but I'm talking about the church here. I'm trying to help you understand something mystical, something wonderful, something mysterious about marriage, and that is your marriage, my marriage, is supposed to be a picture of the relationship with Jesus Christ and his church. In the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, it was a picture of Yahweh and Israel. But then Yahweh becomes flesh. The second person of the Trinity takes on flesh. Jesus becomes flesh and dwells among us, establishes a new covenant in his blood, sacrificing himself for us, and our marriages are to picture that covenant love. Let me be very clear about something. Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And that covenant is supposed to be an unconditional covenant. And so all of this joyfully uh, causing us to belong to one another, that what I have is hers. What she has is mine. All of her belongs completely to me, and all of me belongs completely to her. My wife should be able to have permission to walk up and take my wallet out of my pocket. As a matter of fact, a a teacher in school one year was tried to teach what the word thief meant. And and while she was teaching on that, teacher, she was trying to get the kids to say the word thief. And she goes, well, let's let's say that I was in a mall and I walked up and I pulled a wallet out of a man's pocket and I opened the wallet up and took money and credit cards out. What would I be? And one little boy raised his hand and said, you would be his wife. Um, (laughs) But the truth of the matter is everything I have belongs to Tina. Everything she has belongs to me. She can pick up my wallet or my phone or anything else as if it's hers anytime that she wants to. We belong completely to each other and all that we have. And we may look at each other and say sometimes it's not much, but all that we have belongs to one another. We don't have any secret bank accounts anywhere that's mine or that's hers. It, we, we are just transparent. It all belongs. All our problems are shared. All our victories are shared. Our good times are shared. Our tough times are shared. But we are completely belonging to each other. So open up and share everything, your words, your finances, your dreams, your faith, your family, And let me give you the uh, spelling of the word love. It's a four-letter word, right? Here's how you spell love. T-I-M-E. Share your time. And there used to be a lot of talk about quality time. Well, just just so we have some quality time together, and quality time is important, but listen, every survey I have seen has pointed out that uh, that quantity time is just as important as quality time. You've got to spend time together. You've got to give your life. You've got to share one another. You've got to have a plan to grow old together and look forward to growing old together because you belong completely to her. She belongs completely to you. When you get to the rest of this chapter, you start having to deal with the fact that it hasn't always gone so smoothly with every marriage. And we have to admit, and just by the mere statistics that I have read, And because I know some of you personally, and some of you I haven't got to know as well yet, but I know under the sound of my voice, a lot of you would say, well, you know, it didn't work that way with me the first time. And I didn't ask for it. I would never wish it on anybody, but we went through a separation or we went through a divorce. 
And I want you to understand some principles of starting over according to this text. Some principles of starting over. In verse 15, now we're told in the context of, a, say, an unbeliever leaving a believer, and sometimes only God knows the heart. I mean, it's easy for, if you've been abandoned before, it's easy, it might be easier for you to say, there's no way they could have known the Lord. They claim to be a Christian, but the way they walked out on us there, there's no way they could have known the Lord. Only God knows the heart. But I do know verse 15 in this chapter says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let him leave. A brother or sister is not bound in such cases. God has called you to peace. God wants to give healing. He wants to give peace. He wants to give recovery. And he says you're still not bound. If someone walked out on you, they abandoned you. And then he goes on to say you are bound. You are the one who actually, if you were the one who did the abandoning. If you go back again, look at verse 10. I command the married, not I but the Lord, a wife is not to leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband is not to leave his wife. And so there is a freedom that Paul is trying to give the reader here. He says, if, if you've been abandoned, then you're not bound to that former relationship. But if you did the abandoning, you still have business to take care of before Almighty God and His church. That's why Jesus said about divorce without grounds in Matthew chapter 19 and remarriage causes one to commit adultery because they still had unfinished business, an unresolved relationship, an unreconciled relationship. And so He says, don't jump into anything else. You do everything you can. Remember what marriage is a picture of? Covenant love. What did Jesus do to reconcile us to the Father? He gave his life. So what he is telling you as a husband, you as a wife, if things aren't going so well, he says you do everything you can in your power and depending on the power of God as much as possible to bring about resolution, to bring about reconciliation. And so until that has every attempt has been exhausted, there's, there's a certain... Uh, binding there that is taking place it's because of the picture that that we are the covenant love the picture of a husband and his wife and because of that picture malachi chapter 2 and verse 16 the bible says god hates divorce god hates divorce and i believe that everyone here who has experienced that you would say i can see why god hates it and i wouldn't want anybody else as a matter of fact sometimes i used to shy away from preaching on this because I've got dear friends and brothers and sisters in Christ who would say I've been through that and I didn't want them to feel beat up, but then I had some of them tell me, listen, we don't want anybody else and we don't want these young people or nobody else to ever go through what we've gone through. And so preach it and teach it so that they will not fall into some of the same traps that we fell into. And so you exhaust all measures to restore and redeem that relationship. To reconcile that relationship until it's completely unreconcilable. Hosea and Gomer are a great illustration of the Old Covenant. God tells Hosea, this preacher of righteousness, this man who was clean before God, Hosea, I want you to picture my covenant love, and so I've got a wife picked out for you. The only thing is, her past life is one of a prostitute. And Hosea's thinking, man, I'm a man of God. I mean, could you imagine 
If I were talking to some of our uh, uh, young uh, preacher boys, those that God's calling into ministry here in our church, and I were to say, you know, the, the first thing, if you want to be a great preacher and you want to illustrate God's principles, we've got to go down to Atlanta and find you a prostitute. And uh, you can get married to her. And then you can picture God's covenant love. Listen, there were some crazy things that God did, it seemed like, in the Old Testament to picture his love for Israel. And one, and this is not the application for everybody, praise the Lord, one was he had Hosea marry Gomer. He married her. But then she, in the marriage, was unfaithful, played the role of the harlot, it says. You know, when you start naming your children names like, not mine, then you know something's not going right. And and so then Gomer leaves and abandons him, and Hosea would have been free to say, okay, God, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to find me a woman of God now. And God said, Hosea, buy her back. Buy her out. She she got caught up into the sex slave trade of that day. And she's on an auction block and Hosea buys her back with redeeming love. Because God said, Hosea, I want you to show Israel how much I love her. And though Israel has played the harlot and been spiritually unfaithful, I'm giving myself for her. And eventually, one day, I'm going to send my son to be sacrificed to redeem all those who will put their faith in him. Hosea, buy her back. And I believe even in our marriages today, lady, you might be saying this morning about your husband, you don't know what I have to put up with. You don't know that rascal. I don't, but I know that Jesus loves him and died for him, and he died for me. But pastor, you don't know how my wife causes me so many problems. I know that Jesus died for her. And I know that Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. If Jesus can forgive me and restore me, he can restore anything. And, and so there's this beautiful picture there with, with Hosea and Gomer. However, I do believe there are grounds for divorce and remarriage. In, in verses 26 and 27, he uses that language again, that you're not bound. Uh, are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek to be bound. However, if you do get married, you have not sinned you have not sinned if a virgin marries she has not sinned if such people will have trouble in this life he says but i'm trying to spare you i'm making sure that if you're single you were supposed to be married if you've been divorced that that you weren't the one who did the abandoning and that all attempts for reconciliation have been exhausted usually meaning the other has already remarried and so if you say i didn't abandon my spouse i was abandoned by the way Sexual unfaithfulness, according to Jesus in Matthew 19, is abandonment. It's not a prerequisite for divorce, and God could do a Hosea Gomer work in your life. But Jesus does call that grounds. Uh, You've sought God's help and the church for reconciliation. You've exhausted all efforts, and then you've experienced healing. Listen, I believe that there are grounds for that. I I used to, and, and I'll close with this, when I was a student pastor and even the first several years where I was a pastor of the church, I wanted so hard to communicate to our young people that you better get the first one right. That I told them, I won't do your second one. I'll, I'll just do your first one. I'm not going to do your second one. And, and I believe in, in the past several years, God has shown me, listen, there are situations beyond one of the spouse's control where God may provide grounds for divorce and remarriage. But listen, 
if someone comes to me, because I still haven't done a second wedding for anyone yet, but if someone comes to me, then I'm, we're going to walk through this process and they're going to have to have exhausted every possible attempt for reconciliation. They're going to have to have experienced great healing from the hurts in the past because I believe God says, I want marriage to be that big a deal. I want it to be that important that it would be one man for one woman for a lifetime. A lifetime, why? It's God's provision. It's God's protection. It's a picture, a beautiful picture of God's covenant love. So for those of you who are married this morning, whether it's your first marriage or not, if you are married, let's be clear, if you are married today, you are in a covenant relationship, and God wants this one to last as long as you both shall live. If you're not married, let me tell you, don't rush. I know I'm looking to the young people. There may be older people. If you're 30, 40, 50 years old and you're not married, don't rush into that. Don't rush into it lightly. And if God's called you and gifted you to be single, enjoy that. And the rest of us, celebrate that with them and don't condescend in any way. Realize that their calling is just as high as your calling and their, their capabilities and availabilities may be even greater. And so celebrate that with them. And if you're single for a while, don't rush. Wait on God's best. Because when we don't wait on God, we settle for so much less than his best. Would you bow your heads with me?